What offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ as our Redeemer executeth the office of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. Okay, so in the last few weeks, we've been unpacking each of those offices, prophet, priest, and king. Now, with question 27, we're going to unpack a bit of what it means for Christ to, to be in a state of humiliation. Okay, so that brings us to question 27. That's what's printed in your order of worship here. So, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born and that in a low condition made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. If you would remain standing, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Philippians. Chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 5 through 8 this evening. And uh, let's once again turn to the Lord in prayer to ask for his help. Father, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. The how and the why of the incarnation are profound. We know so little of this grace, and yet we desire to know more. Teach us, Lord, so that we would worship you and be conformed to the Lord Jesus as we grow in the knowledge of this grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So what is the difference between humility and humiliation? Humility is a personal quality in which one willingly lowers himself for the benefit of another. Humiliation refers to someone being made low by another. Humility is usually exercised with dignity, while the goal of humiliation is indignity. A humble person might willingly undertake or might willingly take the uncomfortable seat to give another person the comfortable seat, whereas a bully 
might try to humiliate someone by taking his seat and making him sit at another table. In both cases, a person gives up a seat, right? But in one, in humility, gives it up in love for another. But in, in the other, the seat is taken in order to belittle or, or make the other person feel low for having to get up and move at their behest. Now, the Shorter Catechism 27 speaks here of Christ's humiliation, the indignity that he suffered as our Redeemer. But Philippians 2 speaks of Jesus humbling himself. In other words, the very things, or at least some of the very things, that the Catechism lists as indignities that Christ suffered are the things that Philippians 2 says he willingly undertook. And so these two concepts of humility and humiliation are joined together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This joining of humility and humiliation is often expressed by theologians when referring to Christ's work at the cross as his passive obedience. He did not spit in his own face. He did not punch himself or press the crown of thorns into his head. He did not whip himself with a cat of nine tails or nail his hands and feet to the cross. All these indignities were done to him by his enemies. He was passive. And yet this was not merely the work of his enemies. For enduring these indignities and sufferings was a willing choice that he could have ended at any moment. His enemies humiliated him. That was their goal. But he humbled himself to suffer these things for our salvation. Paul does not exhort the Philippians to be humiliated. He doesn't want them to seek persecution. But Paul does exhort the Philippian Christians to practice humility toward each other, putting the interests of others ahead of their own, as he would say earlier in this chapter, by exercising the mind of Christ as the exemplar of humility. Because Christ humbled himself to be the servant, we who are in Christ can also practice humility. And so let's look here at how Christ humbled himself for our salvation. The first thing that that becomes clear as we start with verse 6 is that being equal with God, he became the likeness of men. Here the language of Form. He was in the form of God, being in the form of God. That is the expression of the very nature or essence of the reality of the thing. That's what this word morphe form means. He, he's the 
expression of the nature or essence of the reality of God. When Jesus then took the form, same word that's used of he being in the form of God, when he takes the form of a servant, right? he's not pretending to be a servant. Jesus was a servant. He's, he's the epitome of what a servant is. right? So he's not pretending to be God. He is God. right? And when he took the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, he didn't cease to be God. He didn't transform, as we might, some people might mistakenly think of the incarnation. He didn't transform from being God to now being man. The incarnation did not involve a subtraction of deity, but the incarnation was an addition of humanity, an addition of a human nature to his divine person. So Jesus Christ has two distinct natures, the human and the divine, united in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the definition of Chalcedon, the, uh, we use these um, phrases to help us rightly confess the union of the human and the divine natures in Christ. We use the words, without separation, without division, but also without confusion and without change. So we cannot separate now the human and the divine in Jesus. We cannot divide between them. There is such a union of them. Neither are they confused. That is, they're not mixed. There's not a mixture. There's a union but not a mixture of the divine and human. That means that there is also no change in either nature. The human nature does not change due to its union with the divine nature, and the divine nature does not change due to its union with the human nature. This is what theologians would call, um, if, if we believed that there was this change that came or confusion of these two natures, we wind up with what theologians call the th- a third thing, right? That is neither human nor divine, but is some third thing. And as we understand the purpose of the incarnation, that would not serve our salvation. Because we are human beings. And so we need human being to come and suffer the penalty for our sins in our place, not an angel Right? Not some um, uh, demigod, right? like Hercules or something like that. No. We need a man, a true man, a real man, 100% man. But we also need one who is God in order to satisfy that, that justice for us as God's people. God alone, all throughout the Old Testament, God alone is the Savior of his people and no other, right? He brooks no rivals. And so we need one who is fully God and one who is fully human, not one who is some mixture of the two and then is a third thing. And so this this is what Christ does in the incarnation. He who is the very form of God became the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. Like men, he was then born in a low condition. 
Now, children, where was Jesus born? All right, I heard two answers. Bethlehem and stable. Right. Okay. So, why was Jesus born in a stable? Were most babies born in stables back then? Is that just a normal thing that babies in the ancient world were born in stables? Very good. All, all, all of the other lodgings in Bethlehem were full. And so Mary and Joseph were basically forced to um, turn the baggage area where people's luggage and people's animals were stored uh, into a maternity ward. Where was Jesus brought up? Galilee. Galilee is good. Can we get it more narrowed down than Galilee? Was he, was he born in Sepphoris? Nazareth. Nazareth. There you go. And um, what was Nazareth famous for? Nothing, exactly. <laughs> the place where Jesus was raised. Do you remember one of Jesus' disciples when he heard that... Uh, Jesus was from Nazareth. Do you remember what he said? Can, yeah, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I don't think that it meant that Nazareth was notorious for wickedness. I think it meant that Nazareth, well, it's just a sleepy little town where nothing goes on, right? Um, and so Jesus was born in a stable... And he was brought up in Nazareth, um, not in a palace, not in, the, not in the hustle and bustle of the big city of Jerusalem, it, but rather in a kind of obscurity, right? In a low condition. He was like men in being born in, in a low condition and, and, and even um, identifying not only with men generally, but even maybe with the lowest of men, those who are born in a low condition. He is like men also in suffering the miseries of this life. As we um, read this morning from Hebrews 4, remember he was tempted in all ways like as we are, yet without sin. So all, all of the trials that, that you face in life, Jesus faced them. He hungered. The Bible tells us he thirsted. He suffered mental and emotional anguish. Remember Luke tells us that he was in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane and was like sweating drops of blood. He suffered social shame from his family and from religious authorities. Do you remember when his family came to take him home because they said he was mad? That is, he was out of his mind? This is Mary and his brothers. You guys, gentle Mary. <laughs> he wept at the tomb of a friend. You ever, you ever wept at the, at the graveside of a friend? Jesus wept at the tomb of a friend. He was betrayed by one who called himself his friend. He was forsaken by his friends. He was rejected by his nation. He was falsely accused, and he was unjustly condemned. 
He suffered all the miseries of this life. In fact, I feel quite blessed when I consider my own life next to Jesus' life. I mean, I wasn't raised in a palace either, but I certainly wasn't born in a stable. Right? Maybe I would take Nazareth over Baltimore, but, you know. But Jesus suffered. I don't know too many days when in my life when I could say I was genuinely hungry. I don't know uh, too many times when I could say I really was so thirsty that I would have taken sour wine on a sponge. Jesus did not pass through this world indifferent to its fallen condition. He willingly chose the path of suffering for the salvation of his people. And so Paul, in a sense, is giving us here an argument from um, the greater to the lesser, right? If God humbled himself by taking our human nature in a fallen world, how much more ought we who are human to humble ourselves to identify with those who suffer the miseries of this life more than us, maybe? How much more ought we to humble ourselves? We have far less to go to humble ourselves to serve our fellow man than what Jesus did in humbling himself to come as God to become a man. Being equal with God, he became the likeness of men. But then Paul goes on to say, being then the perfect man, he became obedient unto a cursed death. Here he uh, refers in verse 8, being found in fashion as a man. The, the Greek term schema is humanity um, in its observable nature. And how Jesus' humanity was observable. You, people could witness his life. And those who witnessed his life testified that he was tempted in all ways like as we are, and yet without sin, that he rendered a perfect obedience to God in his humanity. I don't know that I've ever really uh, given it enough thought, enough meditation to try to take in what it would be like to witness a human being in perfect obedience to God, perfect obedience to God. I mean, we've all, as members of the church in the covenant community, we've all seen partial obedience to God. We've all seen the desire of obedience to God and, and so forth. And that in itself is a beautiful thing and a contrast to what we know of the wickedness of the human heart, right? Just to witness the godliness of our uh, fellow saints. But imagine perfect obedience. That's what Jesus demonstrated in, as he was in, the, in fashion as a man. And in that fashion as the, the perfect, obedient son, he becomes obedient unto death. And, and we read the Gospels and we see that Jesus' obedience unto death is not some 
a stoic obedience, right? It's not some uh, passionless obedience where he's just resigned himself to the fate of suffering or resigned himself to the fate of a cursed death, but rather we see one whose joy was set before him to endure the cross. Despising the shame, not a stoic, not Spock-like as he faces, but despising the shame, he endured the cross. Full of pathos and with an eye to that joy. We hear Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Right? But but Jesus doesn't look on the cross as some trifling thing. He doesn't look on sin-bearing judgment as some trifling thing that he just traipses over to to get it over with. No, it's a terrible burden that he bears. Even in the thought, even in the thought of it. And yet he yields himself in obedience to the Father's will. He says to his disciples in John 12 that his soul is in great heaviness. He's greatly distressed. He's deeply disturbed in his soul as he contemplates the cross. Paul in um, Galatians chapter 3 speaks uh, further of the cursed nature of this death. It was no accident that Jesus died on the cross. This was designed by God so that it would be a specifically cursed death because he was there becoming a curse for us so that we would be delivered from the curse and receive the blessing of God. Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14, it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So anybody here kept God's law perfectly? None of us have. And Paul says that means that we're all under the curse for breaking God's law. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith. That is, those who want to be justified on the basis of the law, but that's not faith. That's trying to earn your salvation by works. But the man that doeth them shall live in them. So that's the wretched human condition for every single person in Adam. Under the curse of the law. Unable to bring ourselves out from under that curse. There's nothing we can do 
It's all vanity, striving against the wind to try to be justified on the basis of the law. That's where we all were until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13 then says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And he did that, verse 14 says, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. He became a curse so that we might receive the blessing. That's the humility and the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the cursed death of the cross. Saving faith then trusts in Christ's death as what it is presented here, a penal substitution. That is, he took the penalty of our sins in our place. Saving faith trusts in the death of Jesus Christ as such, right? Not just as a moral example that I want to follow and love the way Jesus loved. That's good. We do want to follow Jesus' example. And we do want to love the way Jesus loved. We don't. So if that was the path of salvation, we'd all still be lost. That's not the path of salvation, though, is it? The path of salvation is trusting in Jesus Christ as a substitute for our um, death. Substituting the death, substituting for us in the death we deserve. Saving faith trusts in Christ's love that is demonstrated at the cross. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And saving faith must lay hold of the love of God that's displayed in the cross. That's trusting in his grace, God's grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saving faith, it, it has to be a, um, a genuine miracle of God because when we recognize our wretchedness and our sinfulness and the curse that we rightly deserve, then we might find it incredible, literally incredible, that God would love me. Right? What, what could possibly persuade me that God would love me? And I know a lot of people in this world go around thinking that, of course, God ought to love them, right? And why wouldn't God love me? But that they haven't discovered the sinfulness of their sin. That's why they think that way. But for those who have discovered just how wretched they are, we go, how could God love me? Why would God love me? There's no explanation for why he should love me. And so God says, I know that you, are, you, you search high and low and you try to... Re- you know, reach for some reason why I love you. And you may never discover it, but I give you this. I give you my son on the cross as the demonstration of my love for you. And saving faith trusts in Christ's love demonstrated at the cross. And then Paul's application here in Philippians 2. Saving faith trusts in Christ's pattern of humble obedience. I mean, many people have absolutely rejected what Paul calls for here. I've seen spouses, husbands and wives, who absolutely reject this. They won't do it even with one another. Even in the marital relationship, they they, they will not humble themselves 
to put the interests of the other one ahead of their own interests. They won't do it. Even husband and wife. Now, if you, if you see that in marital relationships, imagine how that looks in the workplace. Imagine how that looks in, in so many other uh, relationships that we have with people where you know, people are willing to go just so far in rendering service to another person. Most people don't go beyond where it's convenient, right? As long as it's convenient, I'll put myself out there. Most of us won't even go to the place of inconvenience. And here Paul is saying, no, I want you to put the interests of the other person ahead of your own interests. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So, as we have trusted in the death of Christ as penal substitution, as we have trusted in Christ's death as the demonstration of the Father's love for us, we can also trust that the pattern that he followed, the pattern that he laid out for us, is also the pattern for our lives. Right? So it doesn't mean that serving other people is going to be easy. Jesus' life wasn't easy. Right? But that humility, humbling himself, as we'll see next week with question 28, right? That's, that's the path to being exalted, right? And enjoying the glory of the resurrection and the glory of his ascension and the glory of being at the Father's right hand and dwelling forever in the Father's house. And so... You say, yeah, you know what? Humbling myself the way that Jesus did, that's a terrifying thing. The people are wicked people. And if we humble ourselves, we're probably going to get hurt. Jesus got hurt. But we trust. We trust, right? Just like we trust in his death for our sins, we trust in his love for us, we trust in the pattern that he laid out for us so that we, his mind is in us to humble ourselves Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Almighty God, we do pray that you would um, conform us to your, Lord, your, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, As you have given us the mind of Christ, we pray that more and more we would um, see that manifest in our obedience to you, in our service to one another, in our service to others. Lord, help us to be able to put uh, the sin of pride and arrogance to death as we humble ourselves before the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, who humbled himself uh, to redeem us. We ask in his name.